So you've reached the age of zero energy, zero sex drive, and zero weight loss, and you wake up every morning with aches and pains. You're not alone. There is help with Nava Health. Nava Health's technology-driven approach goes beyond symptoms to find the root cause. Nava medical experts will create a customized plan to help you feel your best at every age. Visit navacenter.com forward slash POD to learn more or call 855-680-6282 today. Don't put off feeling as good as you can. Call 855-680-6282. Results may vary. thought last week's episode was a good representation of how the same facts can be spun into different narratives during direct and cross-examination, as they say, you ain't seen nothing yet. Just a bit ago, I spent three weeks analyzing crime scene investigator Maurice Carpenter's report. We compared his notes with in excess of 900 crime scene photos. And during those episodes, we discovered a lot of discrepancies. To be more accurate, we discovered that Maurice either missed or intentionally left out any indication that there had been a break-in or a burglary. My opinion was that the report was intentionally misleading. There's simply no way that I can reconcile the thoroughness of taking over 30 photos of paper scraps but zero photos of the door jams on the back or the garage entry door. There were paragraphs of narrative on the mop bucket, but not a single word about the HDMI cable hanging out of the living room entertainment center. My opinion was, and remains the same today, that Carpenter willfully and intentionally crafted his report to exclude all possible scenarios, leaving only one, that Sandra Melgar killed her husband and staged the scene to make it appear as though there had been a burglary. In those three episodes, I was pretty hard on old Maurice. But that's nothing compared to how attorney Max Seacrest handled him during cross-examination. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You've seen the film. You know the game. Now, Jumanji just got real. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Featuring Daredevil Dad, Mom on a Mission. And the kids who can't wait to ride the world's first Jumanji roller coaster. An epic adventure awaits. World of Jumanji. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Book this summer's must-do day out at Chessington.com. Back in August of this year, I invited prosecutor Colleen Barnett on the show to explain the case against Sandy Melgar. During that interview, I basically gave Colleen a free form to present her case, unchallenged by me. At that point, I was really in no position to argue. I didn't have most of the case file or the crime scene photos, nor did I have the trial transcripts. I basically had to take her at her word. But, as promised, nearly three months later, I've had time to do some fact-checking. Throughout today's examination of Maurice's testimony, I'm going to be mixing in some clips from Colleen's interview on our show. Sandy's case has been featured not only on our podcast, but also on Dateline NBC, Discovery ID's Deadly Women, various news outlets, and there are a few more projects in the works. Basically, this has become a PR campaign for Colleen Barnett. She's told her version of events to literally millions of people, painting Sandy Melgar to the world as a ruthless, brutal murderer, 
and to date, her story has gone largely unchallenged. Sandy's defense team, Mac and Allison Seacrest, have been working hard to prepare her appeal brief. They haven't taken the time away from their work to tell stories, creating a perfect storm for a media-hungry prosecutor to sway the court of public opinion. But in the interest of both justice and truth, I'll be doing a little fact-checking today. Now keep in mind as you're listening that Colleen's interview on our show occurred nearly a year after the testimony that we're going to be covering today. So let's begin with Barnett's assertion that it doesn't make any sense for burglars to choose a home in a safe neighborhood with people home at the time. When you go in that neighborhood, it's it is it's a quiet little neighborhood that's um, very there are a lot of trees. There's it's it's very um, soft. It's quiet. Um, they lived on a street that was off the main road. Um, the, I think it was like the second or third house in on on the on the street that it was on. All the houses were nice, and it was just quiet, and it it, did, it didn't strike me as a house that anybody would naturally pick to do a robbery, number one. Mm-hmm. So, And the fact that it was in that neighborhood that they hadn't had any type of robberies or any type of crime like that before. And when you have to think about what a person who wants to go and try and burglarize that house, what they're looking at, the... Melgars, according to Sandra, were awake, and it was like, I think, midnight or 1 o'clock in the morning. So they had four dogs that were barking, and they were in the jacuzzi tub talking about how much they loved each other for two hours. Why would a burglar go into a house in that neighborhood where the people were not only there, but they were awake and had barking dogs? That doesn't make sense. Now, let's contrast that with this news report discussing a burglary that occurred in the same district just five days after Jim's murder. That man is in the hospital. Suspects are still on the loose. This all happened earlier today at an apartment complex on Fox Brick Lane near FM 1960. Local 2's Joel Eisenbaum has more. The lucky horseshoe above their door failed them today. Investigators at the scene say a 34-year-old man is at Bentom Hospital tonight, stabbed three times, then beaten after a brutal home invasion. This is normally very safe. You can pretty much leave your cars alone. I mean, it's a safe place to live. Precinct 4 deputy constables say it happened about 11 a.m. right next to the north end of Bush Intercontinental Airport at the Villas at Foxbrick 2 Apartments. And a source close to the investigation says the man's girlfriend was was also home at the time, but wasn't hurt. Why this apartment at the back of the complex was the target is curious and under investigation. You think there was something more to what we're hearing about it? Yeah. I don't think the guy lived here. The two unidentified suspects left with the TV, video games, and household electronics. This isn't the only similar home invasion that we found over the last couple of months. We've uncovered over a dozen cases just from the year or so around the murder with similar circumstances in the same area. And in the spirit of fact-checking, I have to say that burglarizing a home in North Houston while people are home does make sense. From here, let's move into Maurice Carpenter's testimony. He was on the stand for two days, accounting for 349 pages of trial transcript. Given its importance, I'm going to read it to you in its entirety, word for word. Just kidding, I couldn't do that to either of us. As always, the full document is up on our website for your review. I'll just be hitting on the highlights today. The contrast between direct and cross-examination, as well as some explanations from Carpenter that answer some of our lingering questions. As we begin with his direct examination, you'll quickly realize that Maurice is definitely on team prosecution. Direct begins with the usual reciting of Carpenter's resume. At the time of trial, he had 12 and a half years of experience as a CSI, which translates to about eight years of experience at the time of Jim's murder. By trial time, he'd been working with the sheriff's department for 26 years. He's been trained in forensics, DNA collection, fingerprint identification, blood spatter analysis, etc. Basically, everyone agrees he's qualified as a crime scene investigator. Next, Barnett takes him back to the night of December 23, 2012. Her goal here is simple. 
convinced the jury that the Melgar home was not broken into and was not robbed. You're going to see that she definitely accomplishes this with, of course, the assist from Maurice. Early in his testimony, Maurice tells us something that's probably more relevant than he realized. Quote, When we arrive at scenes, we're given a brief synopsis of what occurred, so we know what types of evidence to look for. So we know what's important when we start searching the scene ourselves. Now, that statement isn't particularly damning. I mean, of course the officers on the scene are going to brief him. But later he adds to that by explaining that the detectives that are back at the station interviewing Sandy called him several times to tell him what he should be looking for. Again, pretty much routine. But Carpenter's report was anything but routine. It's clear to anyone reading it that he wasn't doing what CSIs are supposed to be doing, investigating the scene in an objective way and letting the evidence speak for itself. He was doing exactly what he said he was going to do in that statement, only looking for items that he, quote, knows are important, end quote. Colleen continues on to ask Maurice why he took 956 photographs of the crime scene. He says that he's, quote, known for taking a lot of photographs at crime scenes. So taking a lot of pictures is apparently Maurice's move. But I couldn't help but wonder, is he also known for taking pictures of things that don't fit his theory? But Max Seacrest will get to that in Cross. He goes on to explain that he dusted for fingerprints in several locations around the house, primarily the door frames. We find out that he didn't check for Jim's fingerprints on the glass on the treadmill, which I found disappointing because that could have gone a long way toward proving or disproving Sandy's recollection of the events of that night. Nonetheless, no dice on the glass. Carpenter did, however, take a lot of DNA swabs. When asked why, he explained that even though he was given information about what the detectives thought happened, he still always explores other possibilities. Quote, We actually let the evidence tell the story of what occurred. End quote. At this point, Colleen circled back and made sure that the jury knew that Carpenter was unbiased and doing his due diligence. She asked if he had his mindset on a particular theory when he was investigating. He assures her, and the jury, that he did not. Now, I don't know if the jury was buying it, but after reading his report, I beg to differ. Then comes the very long process of Barnett introducing the crime scene photos. She brings them in in batches, and Carpenter explains them as she goes along. Our first stop is Jim's truck. This is one of those lingering questions that I mentioned earlier. There was no indication in his report that Carpenter bothered to investigate or process the truck. No photos of the interior, and, like I said, really no mention of it at all. The frustration lies in the fact that there was an opener for the right side door of the garage in the truck. This could be a possible explanation as to how it got opened. Maybe someone opened the truck door, reached in, and pressed the button. Easy enough. But, according to Carpenter, quote, it was locked. And, quote, there were no signs of forced entry into the truck. He doesn't explain how he knows that or why it's not in his report, but we'll have to wait for Cross to answer those questions. Barnett didn't pry. Next, we move on to the front door. There are a lot of pictures of it admitted into evidence. Carpenter explained why these photos are so important. He says that he was documenting the door, the lock, and the jam so that he could show that there were no signs of forced entry into the front door. When asked what signs to look for concerning the forced entry, he replies, quote, generally broken splintered wood and pry marks around the door lock, end quote. It's a good explanation, and it makes complete sense why it took 10 photos to prove that the door had not been forced. He explains that you really can't tell without looking at the jam, but then he moves on to the back door. Barnett isn't quite as in-depth with this one. She shows one picture and asks, did you take pictures of the back door of the residence? Carpenter, yes. So, sounds legit. Although we know what the jury didn't know. Carpenter never took any photos of the back door jam like he did the front door, and definitely didn't mention the split wood and the scratch marks near the knobs. Barnett moves on to confirm that there was no keypad to the garage door. Remember, she's trying to establish that there was no way for anyone to get into the house, leaving Sandy as the only possible perpetrator. And then she has Carpenter explain that the garage was not a good path of egress. He points out that there were a lot of items in the garage that someone would have to walk around in order to exit. The same items that physically disabled Herman Melgar was able to navigate in the dark that evening when he went through the house to open the front door. But hey, that's none of my business. 
Colleen also makes sure that the jury knows that there were a lot of expensive items stored in the garage, items that were not stolen. Carpenter says that the garage, quote, didn't look disturbed, end quote. Barnett then asks a question that you're going to become very familiar with. Did it appear anything had been rifled through? Carpenter, no. Team prosecution then confirms that a light comes on when you open the garage door, followed closely with pointing out the laptop that was left in the recycle bin. And then she gets out in front of the mysterious backpack full of an Xbox and jewelry. You remember that backpack? The one that Maurice missed and the family found a couple of days later? Maurice says that he doesn't recall there being a backpack in the garage. Now, Colleen knows that he's going to get hammered by this backpack during cross, so she tries to explain why it wasn't collected. Well, it's simple. It wasn't important. And why, you ask? Because the detectives interviewing Sandy didn't call him and tell him it was important, of course. How could he possibly know that a backpack containing expensive electronics and jewelry found randomly in the garage might be important when investigating a burglary? I mean, after all, he's already said that he was being objective. Surely he wasn't only looking for evidence of a spousal murder. Shockingly, Barnett follows up this huge miss of the backpack with highlighting Carpenter's thoroughness. He took lots and lots of photos of the shredded paper. Because it was important. And also a lot of photos of the mop and the mop bucket. He describes the mop bucket as being full of what looked like water. She asks if he smells anything, and he says no. Then she moves on to the kitchen. Quote, Did you see anything, like were any pots broken or thrown on the ground, any type of disarray? She really likes that word, disarray. Then Carpenter replies, no. She asks about the cordless drill on the chair in the kitchen, easily stolen and transported? Yes. Then we jump back to the back door. Any signs of forced entry into that door? Nope. Was it locked? Yep. Any pictures of the jam proving that? That's my question, not hers. Barnett just moved on to the living room. Do you see any signs of disarray in the living room? Answer, no. Then there's this question and answer, which I find stunning. Remember the HDMI cable in the empty space beside the TV? Well, listen to this. Quote, did it look like there was anything indicating that there were home invaders in the living room? Answer, no. Next up, the coffee table. Does it look like anything has been gone through or pushed over or damaged in any way? No. Then she circles around to the entertainment center. Did it look like the electronics were messed with in any way? And wait for it. No. Let's not fret here. Carpenter does add to his denial of anything being, quote, messed with. Quote, there was one cord coming out of the television, but beyond that cord hanging down, it didn't look like they were tampered with. End quote. Barnett follows up with, quote, Did it look like they had been moved or attempted to get out? Carpenter, no. So basically, nothing to see here. Let's move on. Which is exactly what Barnett does. The two go on to talk about the knife in the kitchen drawer with the same brand name as the one found in the tub. Then we focus on the tub knife for a bit. Carpenter describes the biological material found on the tub knife, and then we jump into what he calls the southeast corner bedroom, also known as Liz's old room. You remember Liz's room? The one with the drawers pulled open, the poster torn off the wall, and the jewelry scattered on the dresser and the floor? Yeah, that one. From the transcript, Barnett. Was there any signs of disarray in this room? Carpenter. No. Maurice does go on to say that there were, quote, a couple drawers slightly pulled open, but Colleen is ready for this. Question. Have you been a CSU investigator on robbery cases? Answer. Yes. Or home invader cases? Answer. Yes. And do you see drawers pulled out, things like that? Yes. Do you ever see anything like this? Answer. On typical home invasions, the drawers that are pulled out are usually pulled out all the way, or there's usually items strewn about the room. There's mattresses turned over. Usually the whole room is in complete disarray. Things are turned over. This room appeared to be very neat with only a couple of drawers pulled out. It didn't seem rifled through. Question. Do you sometimes see drawers pulled all the way out and dumped and dropped? Answer. Yes. Did you see that in this case? Answer. No. Now, the funny thing about this, and I'm certainly no expert, although I do listen to Real Crime Profile, 
is that it's always been my understanding that things like mattresses flipped over and drawers dumped out is something that is an indicator of a staged robbery, not an actual robbery. Real burglars just take what they want and get out. They don't expel the wasted energy necessary to completely flip a mattress over. But like I said, I'm no expert. Now, without me wasting an extra hour of this episode quoting every time Colleen does this, just assume that from this point forward, she points out every single item of value that's left in the house and ask Carpenter if that's something that thieves would steal. And he always agrees. So that'll save us some time. And also, in the spirit of time-saving and limiting repetition, here's a quick rundown of this non-burglarized house. Carpenter states that every single room in the house is, in fact, not in disarray or rifled through. But always with the afterthought of, well, there was this one thing, but hell, the mattresses weren't flipped over, so... I'm going to cover something that I've let slide since Colleen's interview on our show. You remember the red cords? If not, I'll refresh your memory. This is part of the narrative that Barnett has been spreading to international audiences for the last year. At this point, I'm piecing together you know, what I've read and the few photos we have. They said there was like a red rope that was described as being around Jaime's chest. Was that correct? Yeah, it was laid on top of his chest. It wasn't like behind him. And it was like a, it wasn't a rope. It was like a cord. Okay. It was about, it was about the size, it has the width of a jump rope. Like okay. a, you know, one you would buy at Target or something. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't very thick. And it matched another red cord that was in a different bedroom's closet. Okay. Um, what so I, that had to be something that, the, again, the burglar got from inside the house. It's not a rope, it's a cord, and it, quote, matched the other red cord found in the closet of another bedroom. Now, Colleen has seen and handled both of these, quote, cords before the trial. And I'm going to let you in on a little secret. First of all, the item that was laid on Jim's body, the lasso, was not a cord. It was absolutely a rope. It's actually a heavy rope. It looks to me to be about a half-inch diameter braided rope with a white core. It's the type of rope that we would use for rope rescue at the fire department. Now, the cord that was found in the closet of the other bedroom, on the other hand, that one is not a rope. Not even close. And it is most certainly not a, quote, match to the rope found on Jim. We have a photo of the red cord in the evidence room. It's small. Some might say tiny. It's so small that when the photo was taken, the photographer put an ink pen next to it for comparison. The cord is about half the diameter of the pen. This so-called cord is actually a dress strap. Very thin, less than a quarter inch in diameter, and it's made of a silky, satin-like material. It's not thick, it's not braided, and the only characteristic it shares with the rope on Jim's body is that it's red in color. I don't expect you to take my word for it on the cord controversy, so I posted a side-by-side photo of the two items on our website. Then you can tell me if you think it was an honest mistake to refer to these two items as matching. And for those of you that think maybe I'm being a little rough on Barnett, this is the deal. I gave her the opportunity and the respect to come on the show and make her case, and I appreciate her taking the time to do so. However, I expect the same respect in return. I don't care if you're an offender in prison serving a life sentence a defense attorney, some Joe Blow off the street, or even a prosecutor. If you choose to come on this show and lie to my audience, I will call your ass on it every single time. No one gets a free pass. Just ask any one of the convicted people that I've worked with what rule number one is. Do not lie to me. It's been becoming very clear to me over the last few weeks that this case was in fact a terrible injustice and absolutely a wrongful conviction. And worse yet, I'm starting to think that it wasn't an accident. I hope and pray that our Houston listeners are taking note and fact-checking me, and I hope you remember this come election time. It wasn't just you and I that were told this tale about the red ropes. Listen to the exchange from trial. Carpenter, there's some red cords in this closet. Barnett, can you describe the cords? Carpenter, cords are, were tied in a knot, just some red, I don't know what they went to. 
They basically were tied, unknown type of cord tied in knots. These the same ones? Yes. Did you recover those? Yes. Is this what we're talking about, this cord right here? Yes. And why did you recover it? It was under the direction of the homicide investigators. Okay, were you, you took a picture of Mr. Melgar's body when it was in the closet, right? Yes. Did he have anything on his body that was similar to this cord? Yeah, he had a cord around his body. Was it the approximate size and color of this cord? Answer, yes. I hope that both Colleen and Maurice are listening to this right now. I hope that they at least have trouble sleeping at night, knowing that they resorted to tactics like this to convict a woman and send her to prison after she lost her husband of 32 years. Now, I'm not saying this red rope garbage was the sole factor used to convict Sandy. But what I am saying is that if you have a strong case, even just a good case, then you should be able to walk into a trial and present the facts to the jury. If you have to resort to this kind of dishonesty, there's only one reason for that. You know that your case is shit. Alright, rant over. Let's get back to business. 55 pages into Carpenter's testimony, he reveals something that could prove to be very important. Remember when I was interviewing Maria Melgar? I asked her if the dogs were loose in the house. She said no, and then Marissa corrected her. She said something to the extent of, remember they were in the living room? Maria did seem to remember, but when I asked her if all four dogs were loose, she wasn't sure. She remembered seeing dogs, but wasn't sure about all four dogs. Now, Sandy said that all four dogs were outside when they got into the tub, and Jim got out to lock them in the office. This is a crucial element of our timeline. We speculated about whether intruders could have entered the house when Jim opened the door to let the dogs inside. But after reading Maurice's testimony, I think Jim was retrieving the dogs two at a time and was interrupted during his second trip to the back door. When describing the office, Carpenter says that there were only two dogs locked inside. Both office doors were closed when he arrived, and two of the dogs were running free, and two were locked up. So let's consider this for a minute. Maybe the dogs are barking because there are prowlers in the backyard. Jim opens the door to call the dogs in, and grabs two of them, one under each arm. Remember, there are barricades that the dogs do escape from, but they're not supposed to. Honestly, I had never considered that he wouldn't just call the dogs to follow him over the barricades he would pick them up. Having only two hands, he takes the first two to the office. While he's away from the door, the unsubs slip in the back door, maybe even locking it behind them to prevent or slow down any escape attempts. Then, as Jim is closing the office door, that's when he's assaulted. What about the strange couch pillow that's oddly laying on the floor just outside the office? A pillow is a common item that people will use to muffle the sound of a gun firing. It doesn't really work very well, but people do still do it. I think it's entirely possible, if not plausible, that the unsubs entered through the back door. At least one of them had a gun. They pointed it at him with the pillow and ordered him to take them to the safe, just like the other home invasion that we covered last month. Remember that I mentioned at the beginning that Carpenter is trained to analyze blood spatter? 76 pages into his testimony, he talks about the blood on the dining chair, the one that was found outside the closet. He described it as being a combination of transfer blood and drip blood, which I agree with. Couple that with the fact that Jim has no sharp force injuries on his back, and I think this furthers the theory that the blood on the back of the chair didn't come from Jim sitting on it while he was attacked. Rather, it came from the killer after the stabbing occurred. It's Jim's blood, but it didn't come from Jim. Another point of interest, the strawberries. Sandy says that she ate one. Now, there's been much discussion on the fan page as to whether the crime scene photos support that. It's hard to tell because we don't have a good angle into the bowl. But Carpenter answers this question for us on the stand. During direct, he says, quote, they appear to be eaten, end quote. Then on cross-examination, Max Seacrest brings the matter up again. Carpenter doubles down and goes into more detail during cross. He says that he can clearly tell that one strawberry was eaten. Then we get to the pillow sham, or shams as it were. When interviewing on our show, Colleen claimed she had no idea why there would be a pillow sham in the bathroom. The door was already open, right. And the, and the, the, 
the chair was on the shammer right next to it. It was crumpled up. Okay. So, I mean, why would it even be there? Why would the pillow sham be on the bathroom floor by the chair? Mm-hmm. So a year after the trial, and several interviews later, Colleen is still acting as though she's confused as to why a pillow sham was in the bathroom. Now, we broke this down a few weeks ago while we were analyzing Carpenter's report. It clearly states that there were three shams in the bathroom and that they were used as rugs. Now, I assume that Barnett has read this and therefore knew exactly why the sham was in the bathroom. But who knows? Maybe not. But what we do know is that when she was questioning Carpenter at trial, he again confirms the shams. All three shams were used as rugs. So, just to be clear, because we don't want false information out there about the case that involves taking away someone's freedom, there wasn't a single mysterious pillow sham just lying next to the closet door, left there because it must have been used to self-barricade the door. There were actually three shams in the bathroom, all obviously used as bath mats or rugs. And we also get a better view of the sham in one of the exhibits, and it is most definitely not under the legs of the chair. It's bunched up beside it. You know, like it was sitting in front of the sink when the chair was pushed into it by Herman. We're going to wrap up the direct examination with this next little nugget. There's a little more after this, but it's just more of the same. No disarray and valuable items that were left behind. But this section I'm about to read to you is one of my favorites. Last week I told you that I liked Max Seacrest. I like his style. Well, after this exchange... I've now added buying Mac a beer to my bucket list. So the scene here is, Colleen has just put up a photo of Jim's nude and bloody body in the closet. Carpenter was the first witness, so this is the first time the jury or Sandy have seen Jim's body. As Carpenter starts to answer questions, Colleen addresses the judge. Barnett, does she need to take a break? The judge, what are you referring to? Barnett, the defendant is crying. Seacrest, well what do you think she's going to do? That's her dead husband. Barnett, that she did. Seacrest, she didn't do shit. As we move into Carpenter's cross-examination, we still have 214 pages of transcript to cover. Max Seacrest really takes his time exposing Maurice Carpenter for his biased investigation into the Melgar murder. Mac is a master of the set him up and knock him down approach. He begins cross with the usual pleasantries and then spends a fair amount of time painstakingly forcing Maurice to explain the importance of a thorough investigation and documentation of a crime scene. There's a lot of, why would you take so many photos type questions. And Maurice sets his own trap with his answers. Mac begins his attack with some light jabs. He shows Carpenter some crime scene photos of the Melgar Street on the night Jim's body was found. He has Maurice note that all the other houses were pretty well lit, most shining bright with Christmas lights. Jim and Sandy's house was most definitely the dark place in the neighborhood, considering the fact that they don't celebrate Christmas. Of course, what Mac is doing here is demonstrating why this house could have been a target. Next, Seacrest tries to connect Carpenter to disgraced detective Sean Carazal. You'll remember that after Carazal served as lead detective in the Melgar case, he was terminated after being caught backdating a warrant on another case. But Carpenter's resisting. He insists that Detective Doucet was his main point of contact. Quote, I didn't speak with Sean Carazal too much. I spoke with Sergeant Doucet mostly. End quote. Now, Mac is pretty coy throughout his cross-examination. He politely asks a lot of questions that he knows Carpenter cannot or doesn't want to answer. He knows that he won't get straight answers, but he wants the jury to hear the questions. I particularly enjoyed him explaining Carazal's position in layman terms. Quote, so he's the number one enchilada. He's the one that's in charge. End quote. On page 192, Matt continues with the Carazal setup by asking Maurice if just any old person can collect evidence from the crime scene, followed up with having Carpenter explain the collection and documentation procedures. Now, this won't come to its fruition until days later when the defense called Carazal to the stand. The state chose not to put the lead investigator on the case up in front of the jury. When you read the transcripts, you're going to see Mac repeatedly bringing up Sandy's booty socks that she was wearing on the night that she and Jim were found. Spoiler alert, this is what he's getting at. Sean Carazal collected her socks on his own. He never documented the evidence, and they were eventually found in a file cabinet in his office after he was fired. 
Seacrest spends nearly 40 pages of the transcript driving home the importance of proper scene documentation before he begins his pounce on the carpenter. He starts by alluding to the fact that a neighbor had given a statement that the Melgar's garage door was open in the early morning hours on the day Jim and Sandy were found. And there's a lot of this during the testimony. Mac cleverly asks questions, as I said, that he knows Carpenter can't answer. The answer isn't the point. The point is that the jury can't unhear the questions. In this case, he asks Maurice if he's aware of the door being opened early in the morning. Carpenter is unaware. Then he asks him if he spoke with any neighbors. The implication is pretty clear. There's an interesting little exchange on page 182 where Carpenter claims that, quote, the majority of the lights in the Melgar's home were on when he arrived. This is completely inconsistent with both the family statements and his own crime scene photos. When Carpenter started taking pictures, the only light on in the main part of the house was the refrigerator light. But Seacrest moves past this and onto the gate in the fence that leads to the backyard, again asking questions that he already knows the answers to. The gate was unlocked, wasn't it? Carpenter, I don't recall. So you didn't go back in the backyard through the gate? Carpenter, no, I did not. Seacrest continues, Wouldn't that be something you'd want to document, especially when you have this theme of no forced entry? Maurice, sorry? Mac repeats the question. Wouldn't you want to document whether the fact that this gate that leads into the backyard is locked or unlocked? Maurice, typically yes. I didn't document in this occasion. Next, Mac displays a photo of the garden hose at the corner of the house. I'm paraphrasing, but while trying to explain his mistake away, Carpenter makes Seacrest's point for him. Seacrest asks if he had tested the area by the hose for blood. Of course he knew that Carpenter had not, and then Maurice says no because he wouldn't expect a killer who lived in the house to wash off outside. So it wasn't relevant. Seacrest agrees, so the hose would only be relevant if there was an intruder covered in blood, but not so much if Sandy was a killer. He brings his point back around later when he has Carpenter go into great detail about how there was no blood or even water found in the showers in the house. If Sandy wouldn't clean herself off outside, she clearly didn't clean herself off inside, then we should all be asking ourselves, where did she wash the blood off? That question should give anyone pause who still believes that Sandy Melgar committed this murder. Next, Seacrest moves on to Jim's truck. In this exchange, it becomes very obvious that Carpenter didn't actually inspect the vehicle. Mac reminds him that the day before he testified that he personally inspected the truck and it was locked. Carpenter answers simply, quote, the truck was locked. Mac, yes, I'm sorry. What I'm saying is if you personally inspected Jamie Melgar's truck and it was locked. Carpenter, yes. Maurice has no explanation as to why he didn't document the inspection on his report or with photos. Mac follows up with asking Carpenter if he's aware that sometimes these will use something called a Slim Jim to unlock and break into cars. Next comes the mystery backpack. Mac starts off by pointing out that despite the items that remained in the garage, Carpenter has no way of knowing if anything was actually missing from the garage. He only knows what's left there. Then he gently slides towards the backpack. He displays a photo of the recycle bin containing the Toshiba laptop. The backpack is actually visible in this photo. Carpenter confirms that he collected the laptop as evidence. Now, the jury doesn't realize it yet, but he just admitted that he was collecting a piece of evidence six inches away from the backpack containing items from inside the house. He even took a photo of the backpack without even realizing it. Then Seacrest bounces around a bit, keeping Maurice on his toes. He displays all the photos that Carpenter took of the driver's side area of the car in the garage. Then he asks, why are there no photos of the passenger side? Maurice, of course, can't recall. He can't recall a lot during cross-examination. Then comes the usual setup. Why did you take so many photos of the other side? Because it was important to document everything? And then finally, Mac drops the hammer. He displays the photo taken by a second CSI team of the backpack in the garage from December 26. Then a blown-up version of his own photo of the recycle bin, highlighting the backpack that he missed in the same location where it was found two days later by the family. As a brief aside here, it's kind of funny to read this testimony, if for no other reason than to see how Mac is getting under Colleen's skin. She continually objects and has to be prompted by the judge to explain her legal reason for objections. From the transcript, 
Here they're discussing the photos of the passenger side of the car that everyone knows don't exist. Carpenter, I don't have memory of that exactly, but I would have to review the photos to be sure. Mac, that's fair, and I'm sure Miss Barnett will show you that photograph if she has it. Barnett, I object to that. If defense counsel wants to show his photos, he can do so. That's improper. Judge, what's your legal objection? Barnett, my legal objection is that... My legal objection is that that's not fair to get from me. Your Honor, I object! And why is that, Mr. Reed? Because it's devastating to my case! Overruled. Good call! Next, we move on to the locks on the doors. Mac focuses on the entry door between the garage and the laundry room. Now, we know, because we actually interviewed the family, that that lock hasn't worked for years. Secret starts out by pointing out a photo of the dining room that includes the door to the garage, and he describes the door as looking a little, and I quote, akimbo. That's Mac speak for the door looks messed up. Then Mac proceeds to make Maurice Carpenter look like a complete incompetent ass. Throughout the next several pages, he is passive-aggressively relentless. I'm not going to read it all to you, but some highlights include having Carpenter count out loud how many photos he took of the properly functioning front door, asking him why he took so many, and of course, that's to be thorough. Then contrasting that to the lack of photos of the broken garage door. Then he asked Carpenter if he ever even checked to see if the lock worked. He hadn't. Then back to the front door. Now the pictures of the jam. Then he wants to know why we don't have any photos of the jam of the garage door. At some points, Mac likes to feign confusion. Quote, So we have a series here. I'm counting them. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Looks like ten photographs, give or take, of the front door and the locking mechanism. You can almost feel Carpenter squirming. Then to the back door. Same story. No photos of the jam. Then back to the garage door. Again, feigning confusion. Did you at any time attempt to lock that door? Because I haven't seen any documentation in your offense report about that. Carpenter, no. Next, Mac moves on to the mop bucket. It seems for a moment like Carpenter's off the hook for the door, but really he's not. Mac points out the nine photos that Maurice took of the bucket. Quote, oh, so that piqued your interest. Clearly the garage and back door did not pique Carpenter's interest. But that didn't stop him from stating under oath that there was no signs of forced entry. Seacrest does spend a bit of time actually focusing on the mop bucket. He kind of had to, because during direct, the jury may have been left thinking that the mop was used to clean up the crime scene. He asked Carpenter if he smelled anything in the water. He's alluding to bleach here. Quote, I couldn't smell anything. I have a very poor sense of smell, end quote. Mac, okay, but at any time did you think it would be important to your investigation to get anyone else that had a better sense of smell to take a whiff? Turns out, he didn't. Next, Seacrest points out that there was a lot of dog pee and poop in the office. And he does so in his usual colorful style. I don't think Maurice was impressed. From the transcript... That looks like to be kind of a diaper on the floor of the what appeared to be the study in the house, Deputy Carpenter. Answer. Yeah, kind of like a pee pad for dogs. Question. And we can see the suspect, the probably number one peer, looking at us. What is it, a chihuahua, or what is that? I don't know what breed it is. We can agree it's not a Rottweiler, can't we? Correct. It's not a German Shepherd? Right. Okay, they had four little yip-yap dogs in the house? I don't remember. More than one? There was more than one. Okay, and probably because they had bodily functions, that looks like the aftermath of that. And I believe you testified to the fact that you could kind of smell poop and urine when you went into that room. In that room, yes. Notwithstanding your poor sense of smell. You could figure that out, right? Max spends a lot of time pointing out DNA analysis that was never done in this case. Some glaring examples include the laptops, some of the jewelry, and most importantly, the clothes that Sandy was wearing. That's right, her clothes were collected after she returned from the interrogation, but were never processed for any DNA. And don't even get me started on the safe in the closet, but we'll get to that in a minute. 
First, Mac wants to talk about the cords hanging out of the living room entertainment center and running off of the antenna in the bedroom. During Cross, Mac gets Carpenter to admit that there's an open space in the entertainment center where the cord is hanging out. But then he adds that he doesn't think a device belonged in that space. Mac then asks him if he traced the HDMI cable to see what it was connected to. Nope. Why bother? This clearly wasn't a burglary. Then on to the missing TV in the bedroom. More of the same here. Basically, Mac spends some time pointing out things that Colleen didn't want to talk about during direct. No disarray, nothing to see here. That was pretty much the theme. Seacrest points out the flaws in that testimony. Carpenter says that he doesn't think the jewelry and empty boxes in the bathroom counter looked ransacked. Mac points out a candle that's knocked over onto the floor right next to the counter. Carpenter says the drawers in Liz's bedroom didn't appear to be picked through. Mac then points out the books that were placed on the bed right next to the drawer containing the Xbox games and DVDs. Don't you think that that looks like maybe someone could have moved those books out of the drawer to get to the more valuable contents underneath? Then there's the upside-down picture frame next to the nightstand that was once home to a 32-inch television. And the watches on the floor in Liz's room. It goes on and on, forcing Maurice to own up to all the evidence that he left out of his report and direct examination testimony. Next, we move on to the prescription bottles. Mac wants to know if Carpenter documented or inventoried exactly which prescriptions were left behind. Maurice thinks that's irrelevant because thieves wouldn't take time to look at which drugs they're stealing. Then Mac asks him if he's ever been a drug addict. Maurice says no, and Seacrest asks if he thinks maybe a drug addict might want to actually know which drugs they're stealing. You know, to get what they really want. Carpenter doesn't get to answer that question. Barnett objected. We're going to end today with the safe. There's more to the cross-examination, but for time's sake, I think this topic nicely sums up the thoroughness of Maurice's crime scene investigation. Question. When you were conducting your forensic investigation at the scene, did you notice anything on the handle of the safe? Answer. There was some blood on the handle. Apparent blood. Mac then asked Carpenter to explain the forensic testing that he ordered on the bloody safe. There's a lot of back and forth about what, quote, processing means, basically checking for fingerprints and swabbing for DNA, then Mac asks a straight question. So, no processing of the safe ever took place? Carpenter, no. So apparently, Sean Corazal, at some point about two months after the murder, went back and took photos of the safe handle. The family believed that there was what looked like a fingerprint in the blood. Those photos lay dormant for four and a half years, before Barnett finally asked Maurice to take a look at them about a month before trial. And according to him, there were no identifiable prints. When reading this next bit, I feel like Mac is actually pissed at this point. He asked Carpenter if he collected the safe as evidence. Did you pick it up? Do you know how much it weighs? Do you even know if it was bolted to the floor? Carpenter is clueless. Then this from the transcript. Prepare to have your head explode. Question. So what appears to be blood on the handle of the safe, two feet from his body, and no one swabbed it for DNA, is that your testimony? Answer. Not to my knowledge, yes. Question. Do you think that was handled appropriately? Maurice's answer. The blood on the safe would have probably been Sandra Melgar's. So if that would have been swabbed, it would have just been Sandra Melgar's blood on it. Are you fucking kidding me? He didn't bother to process the safe that was two feet away from the victim. The safe with blood on the handle. And why didn't he process the safe? Because it would have been Sandy's blood? Pathetic. The good news about Maurice's testimony is that Max scored some huge wins. Here's a quick breakdown. There were clearly a lot of indicators on the crime scene that this was, in fact, a home invasion. No one, Sandy or otherwise, cleaned themselves up in the house. The showers and sinks were dry and showed no signs of being cleaned up. Sandy's hands showed no signs of injury other than a very small scratch on her left thumb. Carpenter's conclusion that there was no forced entry into the house was proven to be based on speculation rather than actual investigation. 
and just in general, Maurice did a piss-poor, inadequate, biased job of investigating the crime scene. But the bad news is that Carpenter was the very first person to testify. What seems like a big win was obviously forgotten by the jurors by the time they retired for deliberations the next week. Otherwise, how can anyone possibly explain how Sandy stabbed her husband to death, never washed any blood off of her body, and it was found the next day, bound and barricaded with soiled underwear, without a drop of blood on her? Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Our Season 6 logo was also created by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our banner images and type font across all of our logos was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Britta Bliss, Sarah Colby, Rachel Timberman, and Liz Rose. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to Patreon.com slash TruthAndJustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 per month, and we also have reward levels on the Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at bobruftruth. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.